I would invite you to turn in your Bibles this evening to the book of Deuteronomy. I'm going to read, finishing the end of chapter 4, and then moving through the entirety of chapter 5. Strange, I know, pace. Quick, slow, quick, slow. That's all right. Uh, I'm not going to take time to enter into each of these commandments. I've done a sermon series on the Ten Commandments before. And we will have opportunity to look at these things as we move through the book of Deuteronomy. This evening, I want to look at the covenant and the use of the law in that covenant and how the law is used by God to prompt in us holy reverence and awe and how it is we ought to faithfully return to the mountain where God first gave gave that law even in our lives today. I'm going to read Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 44 to chapter 5. Verse 33. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt beyond the Jordan in the valley opposite Beth Peor in the land of Sion, the king of the Amorites who lived at Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land in the land of Og, the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites, who lived to the east beyond the Jordan from Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon as far as Mount Sirion, that is Hermon, together with all the Arabah on the east side of the Jordan as far as the Sea of Arabah, under the slopes of Pisgah. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb, Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery." And then here are the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath holy. Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder... And you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, 
And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is his neighbor's, or is your neighbor's. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and still have lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people, which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a mind as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it may go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents, but you shall stand here by me and I will tell the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you may or that you shall teach them that you may do them in the land that I am giving them to you to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. As far as the reading of God's word, let me pray for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we ask you might untangle my tongue, That you might give me words that might lead, move, that might do the work that you by your spirit ultimately do. That you would give to us wisdom and understanding, life from your word. That you would bind our hearts to you afresh and anew this evening that we might go the way that you have instructed. We ask these things in your name. Amen. If there is one thing that is true about our king is that he does not stutter, he does not stammer, he does not trip over his words, he has something to say. He has something to say to his people, and what he has to say is the very heart and center of our religion. At the very center of the Christian faith is not your moral capacity Or even obedience to the law, it is a God who speaks and he does not stutter. He does not equivocate. He does not talk out of one side of his mouth one way and the other another. He speaks what is right and true. I do think it is ironic that we live in a nation today where the one who has the greatest power lacks any capacity to speak with confidence and clarity. Have you seen this? Have you experienced this? If you follow Instagram or any social media whatsoever, every day it's something new. 
the stuttering and stammering leader of the free world. Now, this says less about him and more about us, that this is the kind of man that we have chosen to lead us. And do you know why? Because we don't want someone to speak for us and tell us what to do. We do not want a king who sits upon a throne and gives us orders and directs us where we should go. It is convenient. It is convenient that our leaders lack ambition, quality of character, and power. What it enables us to do is hide from authority. Brothers and sisters, that is not what we are called to do. Now, I am not seeking to be needlessly insulting. I am saying, look at what we have become. And look at the kinds of kings and princes that we choose to rule over us. Look at what Israel chose in Saul. He was tall and he was handsome. But Saul loved one above all the rest. Mirror, mirror on the wall. (laughs) Who's the fairest of them all? Saul loved him some Saul. He loved Saul so much that even when he was confronted by the prophet of the Lord, Samuel, he refused to be humble. Now, David was not like this, even though David was a great sinner. When he was confronted by the prophet Nathan, he was cut to the heart. They heard the same message. You have sinned. You have violated God's word. What makes those two men different? Cut to the heart. In the presence of God's speech, in the presence of God's law, that is what we are to be. And that is ultimately what God wants from us and is seeking to give to us in the communication of his law. The law is for our benefit. It hurts and it heals. It condemns and it gives life. It does all of this because ultimately it is the product of God's holy speech. We are to receive it as God hath said. And that's what I want us to do this evening, to understand as Moses is communicating to this people, the second generation, this is how you are to think of the giving of the law so that you might do it. Two points. The first, another fitting prologue. Another fitting prologue. And then second, the law itself. The law itself. Let's look at this first point. Another fitting prologue. Past in the church is prologue. What is prologue? Well, this is the first part of a book or here, the law. It is a content of revelation that prepares us to receive what comes after. You are accustomed, especially at this church, to reciting the Ten Commandments. And when we recite the Ten Commandments, we do not begin with the first commandment. We begin with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What is that prologue? It is the declaration of God's saving mercy shown to a people who are now called to receive the law. We see that in chapter 5, verse 6. But really chapter 5, or verse, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 44 through chapter 5, verse 5 are a kind of prologue. And the prologue is comprised of two things. Relating and reminding Israel of God's deliverance, 
victory over foreign nations. I am the Lord who has given you victory over Og and Sion. I gave that to you. I am the one who gives you life. I am the one who gives you deliverance. And how many more things could God relate even to Israel? Look at all of the times I have freed you from these things. And not only that, but Moses clearly tells the second generation, you were at the mountain. Some of them were not. So how are they there? The same way that you and I were at the mountain. How were we at the mountain? I mean, we're getting ready to celebrate one of our elders' 50th birthday. He told me that the other day. I'm thinking he was a little closer to Sinai even than I was. Just by 10 years, right? This is what you do. You make fan of the, the elderly. <laughs> all of you going, come on. Now I'm all, we're, how many people have I offended? None of us were there. And you know the joke. She was there with Moses at the mountain. You know, this is what you say um, when you are making fun of the elderly behind their back. Were you there with Moses? None of us were there. Many of these were not there. They weren't even that old. Some of them were born to parents who died in the wilderness. There were women who became pregnant after Horeb, after Mount Sinai. And they, those wives, those husbands, those mothers and fathers, who were not entering to the land, we are there because we are the people of God. Because this book is our book. Because when God spoke to the first generation of Israel at the mountain, He speaks to every subsequent generation of those who are united to him through the Messiah. You and I were at Sinai. And so there is instruction for us there. What is that instruction? Look at what God did and listen to what God has said. What is God saying? Because I have delivered you, you need to obey me. Because I have given you this marvelous gift of salvation, now devote yourselves To my covenant. God is the primary, gracious, condescending mover in all of this. And we follow his gracious lead. What I am saying is the prologue ought to change the way and it ought to, um, in essence, it it is the glasses that we put on by which we see the entirety of the law of God. We receive the law as those who have been saved by grace. None of the Israelites were to be at Sinai if it were not for being moved out of Egypt through the Red Sea to the mountain. This law is for God's people. It is for the visible church. It is covenantal in that it is between God and his chosen people. It is worshipful because it reveals God and helps us exalt him. It clearly reveals the righteousness of God that he must supply. Even Israel understood we are receiving this law as those who need to be instructed how we are to live by God, the one who lives on the mountain, even through his prophet Moses. And so even as we receive the law, we need to understand that mercy is woven into the very warp and woof, the fabric of it all, God's mercy. The law is not just beautiful because it is holy, because it reveals God's holiness, but it also reveals his mercy, his condescension, his kindness, his particular affection. Who was at that mountain? All who had been baptized in the Red Sea. 
And though the law is for all men, it is of particular value to the saints because it teaches us of who God is and who we are to be. This, therefore, relationship between the prologue, chapter 4, verse 44, through chapter 5, verse 6, and its relationship to the Ten Commandments, the summary of God's law, the relationship of prologue and exhortation is a perpetual, repetitive dialogue. They are related to one another. And they are always to be seen in conjunction with one another. Parents, let's say your children disobey the rules. And it is time for corporal punishment. And you go into your bedroom. You pull out whatever it may be, that implement of discipline that you use. And you go to your children and say, I hate you. And that's why I'm going to hurt you. (laughs) What do you do? I love you. And you must learn that the wages of sin is death. And it is because I love you and I am concerned with your eternal soul. Here is the reward for your disobedience. And that's why kids, your parents say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And you go, and you know what? That's, That's not really true. It's just kind of something that parents say. I think because it grieves your parents to see their children sinning. That is the part that hurts. And yet, that discipline is applied. Why? So that you may know the discomfort that comes in rebellion. You say, I love you. And this is the consequence for your sin. It is out of the abundance of God's love that he reveals to Israel what they must do and how they must live and what is the consequence if they disobey. The scripture says God chastises those whom he loves. It's temporary and it is for the purpose of our redemption. And so there is always these informing issues. The prologue, God's saving mercy informs the law. God just doesn't slap the law down and say, good luck, have fun with that. Which is how every God of every other religion gives the law. There are no other religions where the law is preceded by expressions of divine mercy and condescending favor. Children, can you imagine having given every effort to obey And you look at your parents and you say, look at what I've done. And they say, it's not good enough. Try again. Now, maybe they say, well, we need to work on that a little bit. But the only thing that you receive is, that's stupid. How how could you do that like that? That is how every God of every false religion relates to their people. There is no God of men that expresses favor prior to the call to obedience. And you know why that is? Because all the idols of men act like men. They are fickle. They respond to allegiance. They do not precede it. This is the unique nature of our God. He expresses love 
and favor and kindness ever before we get to the mountain. This is why the call to worship comes first. You don't stand at the door and go, well, have I done enough? You know, you scan in based upon your righteous deeds. And if you've done enough, the door is open and you can come inside. No, we are brought into the presence of God and we are made righteous by his atoning sacrifice. And in that relationship of covenant affection, he gives us the law and says, do it, do it. And he empowers us to do it. And he strengthens us to do it. And so there is this perpetual dialogue. This is the fitting prologue. And this is why we should, in every aspect of the Christian life, if we are struggling with obedience, we must become historians of grace. This is what is requisite for you to disobey God. A disdain for his covenant provision. God is not giving me what I deserve. Do you know who said this? Do you know who said this in order to get Adam and Eve to do what he wanted? Satan. God is withholding from you. He's not giving you what he said he would. And so they said, okay, we'll take it for ourselves. We must go back and look. God delivered Israel while they were languishing in slavery, according to his promise. And time and time again, if we are to be moved to obedience, we must go back to the prologue. Stay in the prologue. Live in the prologue. And here's the beauty. The prologue only gets better as history goes on. Israel one day gets a king, King David. Perhaps one of the greatest kings in all of history. Israel gets prophets. They get John the Baptist. And the greatest prologue to every call to faith and obedience is Christ himself. I'm putting it this way. If you are struggling with obedience, go back to the provision of Christ upon the cross and see the love of the Father, the love of the Son, and the love of the Holy Spirit, and ask that the love of God might move you to see the law as a glorious revelation, as instruction as to how you are to live in faithfulness to Him, as those who have been saved. Now let's look at the law itself. Starting in verse 7, the Lord says, well, we know this, right? The Ten Commandments. I'm not going to go tablet, I mean, commandment by commandment, but I want to look at some of the things that are unique about this law. The law was not given here. Remember what I said? This second generation was with the first generation at Horeb as covenant people. And so Moses says, this is yours. And here it is. A reminder of that. Two tablets. Now, if you see artistic renderings of the Ten Commandments, they're often these sort of rectangular things with a a dome top, and you have four and six, or five and five. Two tablets are not splitting the ten in half. On one tablet are the Ten Commandments. On the other tablet are the other. Two copies of the same covenant law. One for God and one for the people. Now, why is that? Well, why do you, when you sign a contract when you're buying a home, is there that 
copy under the copy. You know what I'm talking about? You sign one that goes to some filing cabinet somewhere, and you get another. You have the same document. And what that document indicates is both parties are bound to the same contract. God is entering into a covenantal contract with people, with you and with me. And God and man are held to the same law. This is not a unique thing. This is sort of the pattern of ancient Near Eastern covenant making. You have the higher power and the lesser power. And they are bound together by a blood oath, a covenant contract. And they're saying, whatever it says here, we will do. God is entering into a covenant with Israel at Sinai. And he brings them to the mountain for this purpose. To wed himself to them and they to him. It's a wedding ceremony. And so when God gave to Moses these tablets, he inscripturated, he carved into stone with his own divine finger, the law. A summary of his moral command that exists for all eternity. If you want to know what God is like, this is one good place to begin. If you want to know what God requires of us, this is the best place to start. And the first one is, don't be an idolater. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Commandments 1 through 4 apply to our duties to God, 5 through 10 to one another. Have you seen a better summary than this in all the earth? Have you? This is how you have to run your homes. This is how you ought to run your life, how you run your businesses, how nations ought to be governed. This is the great and holy law of God. And there is no institution on earth that does not run on or is not blessed by these ten words. Let's say it's left to us. I think this morning I said, imagine if you're planning a church, how would you do it? What do you do? Let's say you're starting a country. Maybe you and some of your closest friends are shipwrecked or in a plane crash on a deserted island, and it is up to you to establish a society. Where do you begin? Right here. Let's write these things down from memory. Maybe there's a debate on, do we use the King James language? What do we do? (laughs) But we're going to do these ten. Our society, our relationship with one another, and as people with God, is grounded upon these ten things. It is the heart of the law. It is a covenantal summary in nutshell. And it is from these ten words, these ten commandments, that all of the case law comes. It is the unpacking of the ten commandments that God gives to Israel. Because Israel was to be a nation. And a nation needs laws. How do you apply the eighth commandment? How do you apply the third commandment? And so the list or the law is more than a list of thou shalts and thou shalt nots. But it is the call of God to honor him as God. It is the beginning, the middle and the end of learning how to be faithful unto the Lord. And the only fitting response is what we find in verses 22 through 27. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness 
with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now, earlier in chapter 4, Moses says, No one in the history of the world leading up to this point has ever seen anything like this. And the people of God say, You're right. This is amazing. How did we survive this? Because the point of it is life. The purpose of the giving of the law is not condemnation that leads to death. The purpose of the law is to give to his covenant people a means by which they may have life. That is why they're not dead, but they are alive. Now it is in disobedience to God's law and the rejection of the land of the living that they were put to death in the wilderness. But the call is very clear. And the law makes no mistake. If you wish to live, you must serve the Lord with reverence and fear. It is the only fitting response to the law. Not, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sleep with whomever I want to sleep with. I don't care. I'm going to go do whatever I want to go do. And do you know what the end of that is? Death. I'm going to take whatever I want to take. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. I don't care. I want to be happy. It's my life. Let me do what I want to do. You are still at the foot of that mountain. And God is at top. Who is the Lord of heaven and earth? It is not you. So unholy that you cannot even touch the mountain upon which God lives. The great offense of sin is that we seek to build a mountain and give another law. This is what we're seeing right now. And you know who does not live at the top of that mountain? Those who are in leadership over us. There is no man who dwells at the top of that mountain save God alone. He is the one who gives us that law. And we look at our leaders with fear and trembling. Why? What are we afraid of? We've given too much power to ourselves and to them. And they are like gods to us. Either we hate them more than we ought, or we fear them more than we ought, or we love them more than we ought. This is true. They loom too large in our minds when it is God who lives at the top of the mountain. And we are to look at him and go, we have seen God and we have survived. Every day you come to worship and you leave this sanctuary, there should be a little bit of a hairs raised on the back of your neck. We have seen God and we have lived. We should be in awe of the presence of God, and we ought to understand how it is we have been made fit to be in His presence. And it is not because we are law keepers. It is because God is incredibly patient with us. God could have been justified to pour out His fire, not in consecration and the revelation of mercy. He could have poured out fire and just torched them all. Like Mount Vesuvius, just... Nothing but ash left. 
But the fire of God that he brings to us is a fire of consecration and holiness. And we are to look at it and go, we have been in the presence of Almighty God. And even though Israel said this, do you know what they still did? Every single one of those people that were actually there died in the wilderness. It is not enough to see. We must believe. Despite the warnings, many in Israel fell away. For to receive the law and to see it is not to be automatically a law keeper. The law introduces us to a holy God and a sinful self. We must repent. We must repent in the face of the law and seek God's help. The law must not only be on tablets of stone, but what did the scriptures say? It must be through God's Holy Spirit written, carved into our very hearts. We must take care lest we go astray. Now Moses, he sees this second group, the next generation. And what is the thing he does not want to see more than anything else? That they become like their parents. Don't be like them. Avoid that mistake. And so what will Moses, by the Spirit, hammer home to them? Do not reject the voice of the one who speaks from the mountain. Because it is not just rejection of law. It is the rejection of the lawgiver. This is why you reject the law. Not only because it is inconvenient. Not only because you do not understand the consequences of your disobedience. But when you are not able to envision what eternity is like based upon obedience or disobedience, what drives us to obedience now is love for the one who has given us the law. Prologue. This is again where the prologue comes in. To understand that you have received incredible mercy. And as those who understand God's love, it is to walk in the Lord's ways. Every Lord's day, God calls us to his mountain to worship. And the worst response you could ever give is, eh, eh, whatever, i got other things to do. Like what? Is there another mountain? Some other mountain? What are they airing over there? What do they have to say? What do they have to say? Is there a mountain that is like the mountain of our God? For the Greeks, it was Mount Olympus, right? That's where their petty little demigods dwelt. Workers of magic, selfish gods. Every man has that mountain unless they come to the mountain of God. It is a mountain upon which there is a God who cannot speak, who has no power. Just look at Elisha and the prophets of Baal. They were both praying to mountains, weren't they? You know what came down from the mountain of God that night? While the 600 prophets of Baal cut themselves, pleading for Baal to speak from the mountain. Do you know who was at the top of that mountain? Well, there was no mountain and there was no God. It was all the sham. It was Satan working idolatry in their hearts. And then Elisha says, Lord, show them what you got. 
and God burned it all up. And then he brought death and destruction at the hands of Israel upon the prophets of Baal. Brothers and sisters, at the heart of all of this is a jealous God who longs to be worshipped and he has revealed to us the way of life. And not just the provision, but the stipulations. Do this and you shall live. Worship in reverence and awe. And what is our response? What should it be? Take me to the mountain. Let me see the one who dwells upon it. And may he capture and lay hold of my soul. That's what we're saying. Be thou my vision, right? Take my heart, Lord, and seal it. We want the Lord to be our vision, the one who commands us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God.